What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Los in Translation. We got another UFC breakdown tonight. We got UFC 210 coming at you live from Buffalo, New York, April 8th. people let's start breaking down some fights we're gonna do seven fights tonight for UFC 210 typically I like to do the main card but you know there's some interesting matchups here that kind of have implications in their in their respective divisions so we're gonna do seven fights total first fight we're gonna break down is Jan Blachowicz or Blachowicz Blachowicz however you want to call it versus Patrick Cummings so you've got number 12 and 13 going toe-to-toe at the 205 pound division interesting stylistic matchup classic striker versus grappler Both guys had kind of interesting runs in the division. They were getting kind of played in the media as guys that could be competing for titles and the knockout power of Blahovich and the incredible wrestling of Patrick Cummings kind of got completely different results than what everybody expected. Both these guys were supposed to be destroyers, and both guys have had kind of up-and-down records. You know, Blahovich has been 7-3 and three in his last 10, with three of his fights coming pretty pretty recently. He lost to Gustafson, he lost to Corey Anderson, he lost to Jimmy Manua. His last win was for against Igor Prokryovich. Patrick Cummings in a similar situation. You know, he's coming off two losses. He lost to Little Nog, he lost to Glover, and before that he lost to Ovin St. Pru between a win with Rafael Cavalcante. So... Both these guys, this could be one of those loser get out of town things, especially with how the UFC is completely trimming unnecessary fat from the division. I can't figure that out. They're 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 cutting people left, right, and center, which is not smart. Just because if you look at the Bellator roster, it's just growing with talent now that these guys are getting all released. You know, they picked up Lorenz Larkin, they pick, picked up Ryan Bader. You know, they've got they're they're, they're actually building a pay per view roster for the guys at Bellator, and you know what? Realistically, competition is good, so I'm not complaining, but I don't understand why a company would want to increase its competition rather than maintaining its original success story, which was built on a conglomerate of just acquiring the best talent from other organizations, and then if organizations got too big, they would just buy them. Definitely not happening with a company that's backed by Viacom, but I still don't understand why they're getting rid of all this talent and building these divisions that Bellator didn't really have a lot of success in before. This fight, the way it's going to play out... It's pretty much pretty simple. If, if Jan keeps this fight on, on the feet, he's going to come back with a pretty easy victory. If Cummings gets his fight on the ground, you know, he's going to win this fight pretty convincingly. So Blahowicz, you know, he's got a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is a really big accomplishment for anybody who trains. It's not easy to get a brown belt. And, and that position is a brown belt. You can, you can do some serious damage on the ground. However, it still doesn't make up for a lifetime of Olympic-level wrestling that you have in Patrick Cummings. Um, in terms of both guys' weaknesses, Blahowicz, I'm just going to call him Jan. It makes life easier. You know, if Jan can keep this on the feet and keep things in boxing range, I do like his chances. He's not t- typically a guy who throws a lot of kicks. And I don't think that strategy is going to change because there's no point in throwing body kicks to a guy like Patrick Cummings who's just going to wrap up and take you down. The problem is if it does get to the ground, Cummings is going to most likely end up on top. And what I saw from Jan in his last couple of fights, when he hits the ground, he's not very offensive off his back. He lays there, tries to find a way to get back up to his feet, but doesn't really have a lot of success with guys that are good grappling. And that's where he lost against Gustafson. Another concern for me in another area that Cummings excels in 
Uh, Jan doesn't really work a lot off of the cage. When his back is up against the cage, he doesn't really work to, to secure an underhook, you know, try to get a wizard and then turn the opponent back into the cage. He, he kind of sits back and lets the opponent kind of wear him down, which I would assume is going to be a pretty big strategy of what Patrick Cummings wants to do throughout this fight. Jan's fight against Gustafsson, a lot of that fight was lost on the ground and up against the cage. Same thing when he fought uh, Jimmy Manoa. It wasn't a ton of groundwork, but when Jan's back was on the cage, he wasn't very active, and that's where he lost a lot of the rounds and a lot of the points for the judges. Now, the, the guy does have a lot of good knockout power, so it's going to play pretty well into Patrick Cummings' weaknesses. I mean, his, his weaknesses are just in striking. You know, the guy's got an 8-4 and four record. He's 36 years old. It's not that he doesn't have the ability to be a good striker, but at 36 years old and in 12 fights, he kind of just lacks the experience to be able to pick up striking at a very elite level against some of these guys at the top of the division. And Patrick Cummings, I mean, if you look at his fights, he lost a little nog and Glover. Uh, in his last two fights, and even his fight, his loss to uh, OSP, a lot of that is based on his just f- lack of fundamentals in the striking. He has, he keeps his left hand really low, which keeps him open for right hands, and whenever he does establish a clinch, and it's not a successful takedown, and they break apart from the clinch, he doesn't really keep his hands up, which is very just fundamental when it comes to striking. When guys are backing up off the clinch, a lot of the time that's where you want to strike. That's where you want to throw a hook. That's where you want to throw a high kick because guys tend to put their hands down like it's almost a break. And Cummings is very, very guilty of doing this in every fight. That's how he got caught with uh, Little Nog, a guy that he should have been able to beat just by wear and tear and age. And they get caught in a little transition, end up in a clinch, can't secure the takedown on the way out. Little Nog throws a hook catches him on the button, and then it was just all downhill from there. So for him, he really wants to just, you know, make sure that his fundamentals are sound in the striking. You know, don't hang your left hand, get his back up on the cage, and then take him down and just ground and pound the shit out of him. It's a pretty simple strategy. The the question is, is he going to be able to actually put it down? In his last couple fights, he has been throwing more more kicks, uh, which works to his benefit because most of the time guys aren't going to want to catch and take him down because he's such a good good grappler that he has the ability to be able to throw kicks pretty freely without having to worry about takedowns. So if I was him, I would stick to that strategy. You saw him throwing a lot of back leg front kicks against Little Nog. His check front leg roundhouse, his back leg roundhouse uh, keeps the distance and the opponent kind of at a, at a range where he can't utilize his boxing, which with guys like Little Nog and especially Jan Blahowicz, you know, that, that's what you want to do. You either want to be on the outside of the boxing range or really inside the boxing range. So in terms of my pick for this fight, I think, uh, I think Jan's going to be able to get it done. I think he's got more experience. I think he's going to be able to avoid the takedowns. He's 34. He's a little bit younger, but he's moved over to Alliance. He's got better training partners. You know, he'll see more development. He has a, a more realistic shot of making an impact in the division, in my personal opinion. All right, next up, we got Miles Jury versus Mike Delatore at featherweight. Uh, Miles Jury's come down to 145. He did not have a great showing in his first fight uh, where he fought Charles Oliveira. You're not really sure how much of that is actually attributable to the weight cut because he used to be a 155er, but the kid was, was stellar at 155 pounds. He's got wins over some of the best guys in the division. He's got, he beat Michael Johnson. He beat Ramsey Nijem, uh, Diego Sanchez, Takanori Gomi. Granted, some of those guys were kind of on the way out at the end. But he only lost against the top guys. He lost to Cerrone, who was ranked, I think, in the top five at the time they fought at 155. And then he lost to Charles Oliveira, 
who was ranked in the top 10 at featherweight at the time they fought. This fight's very strange to me because it seems like a tune-up fight to me. Mike Delatore, I don't think he has the tools anywhere to take on Miles Jury. I mean, this this is one of those picks where you just go Miles Jury all the way. You know, Mike Delatore, blue belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, not going to get it done against a guy who's got a black belt in BJJ and a black belt in Japanese jiu-jitsu. Mike Delatore's got four losses by submission. Go to Frodo Pepe that he fought was a, is a very, very good grappler. And he lost to Brian Ortega, which was overturned originally because Ortega, he popped for some sort of uh, performance-enhancing drug. But, you know, those guys are elite grapplers. They took him out pretty quickly. It was not overly devastating. Uh, or, sorry, it was not overly competitive in any way. And in this thing, my opinion is you've got a pretty much Miles Jury, who's an A-class fighter, taking on Mike Delatore, who's just, you know, I don't want to be a dick, but he's a B-class fighter. His, de- his takedown defense isn't great. I think Jury can take him down at will if he wants to. If he gets it to the ground, it's a submission. I don't think that's really Jury style. I think he's going to want to stand and trade and try to finish it on the feet. And that's not really a problem against Delatore either. I mean, Delatore's got a rudimentary clinch game. Um... You know, he doesn't work well in transition on the clinching to, to throw a lot of strikes. He usually breaks out and tries to land haymakers. His fundamentals on when he's throwing these power shots, you know, one hand is whizzing towards the face. His hand that's supposed to be protecting his chin is completely down. So I think Jury's counter-strike going to be pretty easy to find his chin. <laughs> Mike Delatore to win this fight, I, I don't see it happening. You know, he doesn't have the power to get it done, but he's going to have to stick and move a lot and, and, and work really good on his feet to avoid Jury being able to set up his striking. Because Jury fights, you know, he throws combinations. He finishes a lot of the combinations with kicks. Delatore can't get his back on the cage because Jury will smoke him, and if it gets on the ground, it's over pretty quickly. You know, for, for Jury, I mean, he can pretty much do whatever he wants in this fight. In my opinion, I'm taking Miles Jury all the way. Next up, we got uh, Charles Oliveira, who is ranked number nine at featherweight, going back up to 55. I think he had four fights where he missed his weight and had to have some sort of catch weight. So I, I don't know if it was his decision to go to 155 or they made him, but ultimately it's the better move. When you miss weight four times, that's just not naturally a weight class you should be fighting at. You know, he's taking on Will Brooks. Will Brooks, really, really game competitor. Uh, he came in as the former Bellator lightweight champion. He's 19-2. and two kid is is kind of a fucking stud all around his debut in the ufc was against ross pearson very very decorated striker comes in gets a job done in a unanimous decision and then falls short to alex Oliveira. alex Oliveira, very very good striker but i think the, the deciding factor in that fight really for will brooks was the fact that i think uh sometime in the second round he cracked a rib or broke a rib and then it was all downhill from there you know when you get hit in the ribs it's, it's game over. You can't breathe. You can't move. It pretty much completely takes you down to maybe 30% of the caliber fighter that you can be when you're healthy. So I'm going to chalk that win up to the injury for Alex Oliveira. It was pretty even up until that point. I can't say that Will Brooks would have won 1,000% if he was healthy. But either way, very, very interesting fight. You got Will Brooks, who needs to come back with a victory. You got Charles Oliveira, who's ranked number nine to featherweight. He's coming back up to, to lightweight to try to make a run at that, that title. You look at Charles Oliveira, he's a very complete fighter, as is Will Brooks, but Oliveira has got a little bit more of a Muay Thai game, and he mixes it in with very, very slick jiu-jitsu when it hits to the ground. Well, Will Brooks is more of a boxer who does throw kicks, but he's also primarily a wrestler. If you look at Charles Oliveira, 
the guy has fought the best of the best in the division. He's got wins over Miles Jury, who, just, who we just spoke about. If you look at his losses, his, his losses are against the very best. He's lost to Ricardo Lamas, who's fought for the title. He lost to Showtime Pettis, who used to be the 155-pound champ, who dropped to 145. He lost to Max Holloway, who, in my opinion, after the whole Aldo situation, is the champion at 145 pounds. He lost to Frankie Edgar, who is just stellar in Cub Swanson. You know, the, these guys are all guys that have pretty much been in the top 10 in whatever division they've been in in the past five years. So there's no shame in losing to any of those guys. Uh, coming back up to 155, I don't know how he's going to deal with a little bit of the power differential. The guys are going to be a little bit bigger. But I also think he's going to be fresher and have better cardio, not having to do you know the extra 10-pound cut which he didn't do successfully before, but still, 10 pounds is 10 pounds. So Will Brooks, on the other hand, he's a very dangerous guy. He's got good striking, but he's fought some of the very best in Bellator, right, which is a very, very huge difference than what you're going to see at the UFC in the top five. So this is a very tough test for him. We saw what happened against Alex Oliveira. It's like a B-plus fighter in the division. So And now he's no longer in the division anyways because he moved up also. But uh, stylistically, Oliveira right? The guy is fucking fantastic on the ground. He's got 13 wins by submission. Uh, He's very offensive off his back. He's got great patience on the mat. He changes submissions. He chains his submission attempts very well. He utilizes ground and pound really well to get the opponent to panic a little bit so he can work into his transitions. If you look at Will Brooks, he's got good knockout power. He knocked out guys like Michael Chandler. Uh, He's got a very good base. He keeps a good high guard in his striking. He's got very good fundamentals. He switches stances to complicate, uh, you know, the striking offense of his opponent. He's got really, really vicious knees, which you can tell because his legs are built like a fucking running back. So he's got really good coaches at ATT. He's got excellent training partners down there. He's training with guys like Jorge Masvidal. Um, He's training with guys like Robbie Lawler was down there for a very long time. Tyron Woodley was down there for a very long time. So he's not, you know, he's got very, very good wrestling training defensive and offensively. But it's going to be a little bit different because Charles Oliveira's ground game is completely catered to jiu-jitsu more so than the wrestling. So, you know, it gets a little bit more dangerous because if you're offensive in the wrestling against a guy who's a really, really high-level grappler, you're going to be giving him opportunities to throw submissions off his back and try to reverse position. In terms of how this fight's going to break down, it's tough to say who's going to impose their will. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're Charles Oliveira, I would say what you want is you definitely want to make sure that you're going to slow Brooks down. So you've got to utilize a lot of leg kicks. He's got pretty good Muay Thai for leg kicks and start cutting down on those massive fucking tree trunks for legs. He wants to definitely make sure he works the body. We've seen that with Will Brooks. That's been an issue before. You know, use a lot of knees in the clinch of the body. Try to slow him down. Wear him down as much as possible. I would probably try to target that same rib that he got injured. You know, I think that if he does go to the ground, he's got to make sure that he's establishing the takedown. He's securing top position, and he can work pretty smoothly from there. In terms of Will Brooks, what he wants to be doing is he wants to keep his back off the cage. He wants to use his footwork to just stay clear of all the takedowns, keep kind of a lower base, and make sure that he's utilizing his boxing. The key is going to be outboxing Dubronx in this situation. So under the circumstances, I'm going to take Charles Oliveira. I think that there's going to be a little bit of a size mismatch because Will Brooks is going to be a little bit bigger. You know, he's, he, he cuts a little bit more weight than, than Oliveira is going to, but I think Oliveira has, has fought better competition to be better prepared for whatever Will Brooks is going to throw at him. So I'm taking Oliveira on this one. Next up, we got Tiago Alves versus Patrick Cote. This is going to be at 170 pounds. Neither of them really, you know, are, are 
guys that are going to be competing for a title anytime soon, but the fight should be pretty entertaining. Both pure strikers, both have the ability to take the fight to the ground, do have some offensive skills on the ground, but, you know, for the most part, this is probably going to be a slugfest. Tiago Alves coming back up to 170 from 155. He went down uh, and he fought Jim Miller, and that didn't go too well. I'm pretty positive that he missed weight, too, which didn't seem to matter. I mean, Jim Miller won by, by unanimous decision. And, you know, now we see that since he couldn't make the weight, he's back up to 170 pounds. Hopefully this is an easier cut for him this time around. It's no easy test with Patrick Cote, man. You know, Tiago Alva has got a very good Muay Thai game. He's got very devastating leg kicks. He wants to use those as much as possible because Patrick Cote has very, very good footwork. And you got to kind of slow that guy down. Stylistically, in terms of strikers, I would say Cote is a more complete fighter. He uses different kind of angles, sets up his his boxing a little bit better and stays outside and stays away from trouble. When they do get into the kind of that, that range where it's either elbow or knee range or clinch range, he ends up, you know, trying to, finding a good way to take the opponent down. You know, we saw him against Berkman when he fought Berkman, who's a very experienced, great athlete. As soon as they got into that range where it could be a takedown, he, he made sure that he was striking first. I expect to see more of that with Tiago Alves because... Although Alves is heavy for 170, Patrick Cote is still going to be the bigger, bigger guy. Patrick Cote has fought Tito Ortiz at 205 pounds. So I don't think that Tiago Alves is going to have any sort of power that's going to be earth-shattering to someone like Cote, who's fought from 205 to 185 down to 170. So I think Cote is going to come out on top. I think he's got the more eclectic striking style. I think that power is not going to be an issue. Uh, you know, if you look at Tiago Alves, his power is really good for guys at 170, but that's for natural guys at 170 and not for massive guys that have fought at bigger weight classes. So... You know, Tiago Alves, he's going to have to use a lot of leg kicks, chop the knees down, uh, cut off the cage, make sure that he's striking first and not he's not sitting there getting taking shots from a bigger guy. If you look at Cote, Cote just wants to make sure that he's using his footwork to stay outside and away from those leg kicks. You know, he wants to be the bully and kind of impose his will as the bigger guy, use his reach well. Another thing that's going to be very important, Tiago Alves is a very durable guy. A lot of his losses are either submissions or decisions. He lost to Carlos Condit by uh, TKO, but that was a doctor stoppage. So we know the guy's durable. So when you fight a durable guy like that, if you're Patrick Cote, you want to try to steal some rounds too. You know, have it to 30 seconds, minute left in the round. See if you can secure the takedown and maintain top position to finish the round. If, if, if the striking exchanges are close, that'll be a good way for him to make sure that he wins and steals the round at the end. Overall, though, I would say that Patrick Cote is a better striker. The only guys that Cote's really lost to recently, I mean, he lost to Cowboy, Cerrone, uh, Wonderboy Thompson, and Kung Lee. And if you look at those guys, those guys aren't really traditional Muay Thai-style fighters like someone like a Ben Saunders or a Kyle Noak that he has wins over. But when he fights guys that, that have very high-volume, fast-paced, changing-angle strikers, like a uh, Wonder Boy or a Kung Lee, you know, that those guys come from a completely different background in terms of striking and they attack from different angles. Those guys gave Cote trouble. I don't think someone like Tiago Alves is going to give him as much trouble. So I'm going to take Cote in this one. Next up, we got the ladies coming in, man. And, uh, you know, it's kind of weird because some people usually get a little pissed off that you see the women coming up and being in these big time fights on the main event. But you know what? At the same time, it's good to get women interested in the sport. Chicks at the bar like to watch these fights. And to be honest, I'm a big fan of the girls' fights because the girls have fucking something to prove and they always leave it out there. And they're a lot more flexible and they don't have as much knockout power. So in a lot of cases, the fights are always a little bit more competitive. 
you see, especially in the grappling, some fantastic transition exchanges because they're a lot more limber and flexible than the guys. So the positions that they can get in and out of is very fun to watch. It's almost watching like really, really high-level uh, jiu-jitsu tournaments when it hits the ground. In this fight, we got Cynthia Calvillo. She made her UFC debut at 209. She was the one that fought Amanda Cooper, who had the much better striking game, and she ended up coming out. She was going for an anaconda choke, ends up changing it last minute. I don't know if you saw the fight, but the transition was beautiful from an anaconda choke to taking the back, which I even fucking know if any guys can do, but her flexibility was outstanding. And she's fighting a girl called Pearl Gonzalez. Matchup-wise, you know, it's, it's another one of those striker versus grappler type of scenarios. Cynthia Calvillo, she trains over Team Alpha Male, so you're not going to get a better group of, of smaller guys to train with from a wrestling background. you got guys like Chad Mendes, Cody Garbrandt, uh, Uriah Faber. You've got an excellent striking coach in Justin Buckholtz. She used to have Paige Van Sant, who recently moved on as a striking partner. So, you know, she, she gets a lot of really good looks, and that team is really, really good. And, and if you look at most of her fights, she has completely dominated, dominated the grappling from every aspect in every fight I've seen of hers. If you look at Pearl Gonzalez, she's got a very good striking background, man. I mean, she keeps her hands up. She's got a nice high guard. She's playful with her striking. She sets up. She doesn't rush in. She uses the jab. As soon as the fight comes out, she's going to start establishing the jab and establishing the leg kicks. That's what she does really well. She kind of dictates the distance right off the bat so she can keep it where she's comfortable in the striking range. Now, granted, in the smaller promotions that she's been fighting, she has been the bigger opponent in most of the fights, which is not going to be the case in this, this situation. So, I'm interesting to see, interested to see how this is going to play out because one thing that Pearl Gonzalez doesn't want to do, she throws a lot of head kicks, not something that she wants to do in, in this type of situation because if she throws a body or a head kick, Calvillo is going to take her down, and I, she has a much better ground game from what I have seen. So Gonzalez is going to have to definitely kind of set up her striking, keep the distance, and try to keep Cynthia from closing the distance. One thing that does scare me, I've seen Pearl in a couple of her fights uh, with the other promotions at XFO, XFC. One of the things that's a little concerning to me, she throws a lot of leg kicks. Granted, she does a good job because none of them are checked, but she does throw them a little high for my liking. I would like to see her come up and over the knee a little bit more and really attack meat on the thigh. That's where you're going to be doing not only more damage, but it's also safer because you don't have to worry about hitting the knees. And a lot of the exchanges, I saw her throwing kind of leg kicks and she was catching with a toe or the bridge of the foot. And, you know, in higher level strikers, when they start checking those kind of kicks, it's going to get very, very painful after a while. And when her explosiveness and her ability to move swiftly to get out of the way from Cavillo's takedowns starts to kind of deteriorate, it's going to be a long night. So I would say that for her, you know, establish uh, push kicks, front kicks, utilize the jab well, keep everything kickboxing range mostly because uh, if Cynthia Calvillo gets a hold of you, man, she's not going to be easy to get off. She, she strings transitions together very well. She keeps top control really well. She reverses position really well. She's strong on the cage. So personally, I think that I'm going to take Cynthia on this one. Calvillo, she had a very impressive showing on the last one. I didn't see enough from Pearl against other opposition that was really good at grappling to, to tell me that she's prepared to handle someone who's got Calvillo's ground game. So I'm going to go with Calvillo in this fight. But it definitely should be an exciting fight. I definitely suggest you guys tune in for this one. Next up, we got the co-main event. This is a fucking awesome fight man by all by all standards it's an awesome fight you got chris weidman who's ranked number four right now at 185 uh in the middleweight division he's fighting uh, number five gegard musasi i don't even know what to do man i'm, I'm excited about this fight i'm kind of disappointed because i'm a really big fan of both these guys 
It's going to be tough to watch someone lose, but the fight should be pretty interesting. Weidman, his his grappling is fantastic. You know, the only time we haven't seen it shine was against Luke Rockhold and Yoel Romero. Uh, Luke Rockhold's a bigger opponent, got a little bit of uh, the reach advantage, the length advantage. He's got very slick jiu-jitsu. And then we also saw Weidman lose to Yoel Romero, which when Weidman is fighting a guy who's got an equal ground game or better, uh, which is what we saw, you know, if he's not the much stronger grappler, he ends up unfortunately losing the fight. So I'm kind of curious to see how this goes with Gegard Mousasi because Gegard Mousasi, in terms of credentials of pure wrestling, does not have the same uh, pedigree as Chris Weidman. But the guy's got a shitload of experience, man. You know, Weidman, let's not forget, Weidman, he's 31 years old. He's already held the belt at 185. He's beat the greatest of all time twice. But he's still only 13-2. and two. That's not a tremendous amount of... of uh, experience when you look at the UFC and you look at the top of the division. If you look at Gegard Mousasi, the guy's 41 and 6 and 2. Okay, 7 and 3 in his last 10. Both guys are 6 2. Weidman's going to have a little bit of the reach advantage, but I don't know, man. Mousasi's not a guy who's really lo- loses on the ground off. Uh, his last three fights, he lost by KO to Uriah Hall with that crazy spinning back kick. He lost to Machida in a division in, in a decision win uh, after a five round war. And Machida's got some of the slickest footwork and very difficult to freaking to you know tally scores as a judge at the end of the day on that one. And then you also he lost by submission to Jacare, who's probably you know the best submission artist in that entire division. So those are the three losses that he suffered, and none of those guys out-wrestled him, you know? So I'm curious to see if Weidman can do it. On top of that, Musasi's fought at bigger weight classes. He's extremely durable. He's got an excellent chin. He doesn't have a ton of wear and tear for a guy with, you know, almost 50 fights. Great submission defense. He's good offensively on the ground. He's got really good submissions. But then again, so does Weidman. You know, I've seen Weidman. I've gone to seminars with Weidman, man, and you'd be surprised at how much knowledge the guy has from a jiu-jitsu standpoint, considering the fact he's so highly regarded for his wrestling. So on the ground, I would give a slight advantage to Weidman, but i definitely give the striking advantage to Musasi. I mean, he's had uh, kickboxing fights. He's got fights uh, with Muay Thai rules. So the advantage is going to kind of shift over to Musasi on the feet. Musasi... He doesn't get enough credit around here, and most people don't know how fucking fantastic of a fighter he is. But let's put it this way, right? He's beat uh, Ovin St. Pru at 205. He beat Ilir Latifi at 205 when he was the next up-and-coming thing. He's fought fucking Gary Goodridge. He's fought Mark Hunt. He's fought Jacare. He's got wins over Gary Goodrich, Mark Hunt, Melvin Manhoff, Hector Lombard. You know, these are kind of names that because he hasn't been as active in the UFC, a lot of people don't know how dangerous he is. But Musasi is probably been a top five guy for the past six years in this division, where Weidman started to freaking kind of come in uh, when the UFC didn't have a lot of competition at, uh, at 185. They hadn't bought Strike Force yet, and then all the guys started to come in. You know, you had the, uh, the Luke Rahholds, the Yoel Romeros, the Jacques come in, and now the division is so much deeper. And, and personally, I think Musasi has a little bit of leg up because he's got so much experience with high-level grapplers and high-level strikers. So for me personally, I, I love Weidman. He's got knockout power. He's got an excellent ground game. He's got great top control. But I don't think he's going to pose anything to Gegard Musasi that Musasi hasn't seen. Uh, Striking-wise, I don't think he's going to be able to do much against Gegard. On the groundwork, if Weidman's on top, I think he's going to be in a good position. But I think Musasi has some tricks up his sleeve that Weidman hasn't necessarily seen. So on this one, I know... 
I'm the dick going against the All-American, but I think Gegard Mousasi gets it done on Saturday night. Next one, I don't, I don't even need the fucking paperwork. We got, we got Daniel Cormier, who's the current champ at 205, against my boy, as the Brazilians would say, Humble Johnson. Um, what to say about this fight, man? What to say? You got two, the two best guys at 205 right now since John Jones is not currently active. We'll see what happens. Again, there's a lot of fucking strikers versus grapplers in these situations. You know, Rumble Johnson has the most terrifying hands I think I've ever fucking seen in my life. I, I gave him a ton of respect, and what I really freaking just was like, this guy is no fucking joke, is when he stepped in the ring with Glover Teixeira, who's a fucking beast of a human being, as is, and just puts him out with one punch. It took like 30 seconds, and it was like, see ya, I'm the fucking champ, Humble Johnson. So, you know, I don't know how this fight's gonna break down. I, I think it's got the ability to be very similar to the last one. I don't think Rumble's ground game can really compete with someone like Cormier. Cormier throws everybody. He maintains top position. Uh, he's got really, really good ground and pound. You really, I don't think I've ever seen Cormier on bottom, you know, as weird as that sounds. So if, if this does get into those exchanges, I, I think that Cormier is going to come out victorious. But I still think Rumble Johnson's going to win this fight, and I'll tell you why. It, it's very, you know, everybody for the most part that I've, that, that I've been talking to about this event has been, tell, has been picking DC. The reason most of them have is because they just think the fight's going to be exactly the same. Yes, there is potential for the fight to be exactly the same as the first one, but I think that Rumble's going to be a lot smarter and pick his shots. He saw that, you know, with one shot, all of a sudden DC's on the ground. His mistake was that he, he really tried to close the distance and DC was able to switch it into a wrestling match. Once that happened and you start getting into the, third, the second and third round, Rumble Johnson's gas tank just wasn't there. So I think he's going to be a little bit more methodical to make sure that he's keeping distance, make sure he's using his reach and picking his shots a little bit more methodically. He's not going to rush. He's going to have a little bit more patience because he knows that if he's if he lands, it's lights out. So why not, you know, take the time to make sure that you're in a safe position to not worry about takedowns and land your strikes properly. Cormier, on the other hand, just wants to close the distance and get this guy on the ground. He knows that if he's in the clinch, he's not going to be eating bombs. And if he can get him on the ground and put Rumble Johnson's back on the on the mat, he's not going to have as much power. So it's a tough call. I could see it going either way. I like both guys, but I'm going to take Rumble Johnson. I think Rumble has made the necessary adjustments to how he wants to approach the striking where DC is going to come in with the same game plan. The other thing I'm not sure of, right, and I don't know how much this plays a factor because we haven't seen DC too recently, but the other thing is Rumble's always training, right? DC is kind of big time now. He's commentating UFC events. He's doing the freaking fight night shows at night for, I think, FS1 or fucking whatever company he does it for to break down and the analysis and everything. I think it is Fox. Um, so how much of that time that he's doing all these different things are taking away from his training? Because that's what happens a lot of the times, you know, getting to the top of the mountain and winning the belt is, is a very difficult task as it is, but it's even more difficult to maintain it because when you're, when you're fighting to become the champion, you have the time to train. You do have some media obligations. You do have some things to do for sponsorship, but for the most part, your goal is to be training. Once you get the belt, you've got to do more media, uh, press conference tours. You know, you've got to go and do the FS1, the fight breakdowns. You've got to go in, and now he's doing more commentary with Joe Rogan. So, you know, it really comes down to how much time is he actually putting in. The, the training style is so fucking aggressive over at AKA from what you've seen with all the freaking uh, the injuries that those guys have had. You know, I don't know if him training less and going in and doing a really hard training sessions with the big dogs is, is something that's going to, 
you know, I guess it will prepare you from one aspect. He seems to be healthy. He seems like he hasn't gotten injured, but I don't know if the time has properly been put in. So uh, on that note, I am going to take Rumble Johnson. I'm going to wrap up this uh, this breakdown. I try not to make him too long. Uh, I want to give you as much knowledge and guidance as I possibly can without having you on here for an hour and a half, two hours uh, mumbling. So I hope you guys found this helpful. I hope you enjoy the breakdowns. I'll keep pumping them out. Uh, enjoy the fights on uh, 208. I hope you guys make some good picks and obviously always hit me up whenever you need www.loscast.com l-o-s-c-a-s-t.com uh mr los 85 on instagram if you guys need to get a hold of me and uh angel scott on facebook guys and or los in translation podcast on facebook so everybody i hope you guys it's friday night my time we're a week and a week and a night out from the fights i hope you guys have an awesome week uh best of luck to everybody and enjoy the fights peace out